All right, we're in a series called Discovering Hope, and it's all about learning more about our great God and why we can hope in him through the Psalms. So we're going to be in Psalm 146, as was just read to you, but I want to start with a question to get us all on the same page. As you processed your faith when you came to Christianity, or maybe you're still processing that question, what made you pick this God? Of all of the faiths, of all of the thousands of religions, of all of the seeming infinite number of gods that you could give your time to, your worship, your money, your family system, why did you pick this God? Because the truth is you have options, but you sit here worshiping this God and there are hopefully reasons So common is this question of why do you worship that scripture actually says to you in 1 Peter 3, 15, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. This is what we're discussing is hope, your ability to look into the future and smile. Because for the bulk of the world, they will look into the future as they scan their life and their marriage and their job or their nation and they'll look into the future at where things are going and they will frown. They will give in to depression, they will give in to anxiety, and they will scheme as to ways to make their life comfortable and safe. And so you, the Christian, why do you hope in this God of all of the beings that could rescue you, keep you safe, guide you in this life? Why did you pick this one? This question is unbelievably important to answer because I would say if you don't know why you worship, if you don't know why you hope, then you don't know who you hope in. And so the reverse, though, is also true. The more that I learn about this God, the more that I come to understand who he is and what he does, the more I will be drawn to him and the more I will want to worship him. As you look at this psalm, it's, I, when I first read it, if you're anything like me, suddenly becoming emotional was somewhat difficult because the psalmist starts the psalm, Hallelujah, hallelujah, I'm gonna praise God for the rest of my life. And if you had a rough week and you just heard that read, you're like, okay, back it up. I haven't had enough coffee. The week was rough. You don't need to scream hallelujah at me. So you might start to tune this guy out because you're like, this guy seems oversaved. Like he's too excited about the Lord, so like bring it down a notch. But before you tune the guy out, here's what he has said to you. I have committed, he says, to praise the God of the Bible for the rest of my life. And here's why. Might I invite you to worship him with me because he is deserving of worship, but you can also hope in this God. And again, here's why. But before the psalmist gives you a number of reasons as to why you should worship this God, he actually says, you have some options. As you're scanning your world, as you're looking at your life, the life that you value We pattern our lives after people and we look at certain individuals by which to save us. This is really what's at stake. It's who do you want to rescue you? And more than just what's happening in this life, the psalmist says repeatedly, can we think about forever? He says, this God is faithful forever. He says at the end, this God will reign forever. So the question is, why are we not thinking about forever? So the first option that he gives you, he says, you can hope in humans. You can, you can hope in man. But he goes, I wouldn't. And here's why. He says, don't put your trust in princes. You can read into that. Don't put your trust in human authorities, in governmental authorities. He says, because human beings, when they depart or when they die, their plans die. Now, you know this person. This person might be in your family or you might struggle with this on an individual level. 
This type of person has a mood that shifts depending on who's in the White House. And they are either very happy and somewhat annoying or they're very angry. This person is overly political because the the rule of the land is the only thing that matters to them. This person has a mood that rises and falls with the stock market because that's where their securities lie. It's all around money. This person is overly passionate about their job in a way that they should not be. They almost idolize it. This person is insecure, somewhat obsessed with their marriage because they say, as long as this is okay, I'm okay. Or they might be overbearing on their children because as long as their children are fine, they're fine. This person has no idea what actually sustains them. More than that, they're not thinking about the end because this psalmist says, can I draw your mind to the end of your life? He says, human beings reveal by one act their inability to help you in this life or the next. He goes, they all die. All human beings die. And however great their plan is, however nice sounding it is, it doesn't matter because at the end of all things, they will die and so will their plan. So if you want to try to analyze what gives you purpose in this life, what protects you, what sustains you when the world is in chaos, and if you want to process what's actually going to help you in the next life, let's stop believing the lie that any governor, any president, any human authority, any human at all will actually have the ability to rescue us. They die. So he dismisses that quite quickly. But he gives you three reasons as to why you should hope in this God. And so if you had a rough week spiritually, you've been wrestling with the Lord, you've been wondering where your hope's gonna come from, you came on a great week. If you came today because a friend invited you or a family member invited you and you're not a believer and you look at all these seemingly weird people because we all sat down together on a Sunday and we all started singing and you're like, why do you do this? And you're not teasing us, you're not, you're not trying to mock, you're just going, I don't get it. You seem to have something. And I want to know more about it. You came on a great week. Because what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to look at why hope. Why hope in this God? Out of all the gods you could have picked, why this one? And so he jumps into it. This starts in verse 5. And he says, blessed is the one whose hope is in the Lord his God who made the heavens, the sea, and the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. He is faithful forever. So as you're gonna start to learn about God and why you worship him, why you would hope in him, he says, go take a walk. I need you to look outside and I need you to slow down long enough to ask questions. Because we're so busy, we can miss how massive the sky is and how wonderfully intertwined it is with what's happening on the earth that we're standing on. And we can go on hikes and miss the magnificence of the mountains that we are on. And we can go to the beach and miss the power of waves. He goes, slow down, look at it and let it draw you to a question. How did this get here? Who made it? Because the first thing that should come to your mind when you are outside is I didn't make any of this, but I sit in it and I'm aware enough to ask questions about it. Logically, this should not make any sense. How did this get here? And so you start scanning options. How could this have gotten here? And so you'll go to an atheist or an agnostic and you'll say, how did this come to be? And they will say evolution. And you'll say, no, 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 before that. Like, I'll give that to you. Okay, sure, things evolve before that. And they'll say, oh, my bad, big bang. That's where it all came from. And you will say, well, hold on. No, before that, where did the atoms come from to explode? Can you tell me where all of this came from? 
and they will say, oh, I'm sorry, you're right. The universe is eternal. So here's what I find interesting. You can be made fun of as a believer for trusting the Lord and believing this eternal, divine, loving, personal being exists. And they'll tease you for this, but they believe that the dirt is eternal. So what brings you more hope? In the beginning, God, or in the beginning, dirt? It's not silly to believe in the eternal. Everybody does. You just need to discern what you believe is eternal. I don't believe that the atoms are eternal. I believe they were built. And I believe that they were brought together. And I believe that God made everything. Now this, again, is where you need to start processing who God is. If you read Romans chapter one, verse 20, it says this, God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. When you go outside, you ask questions and the answer that is given to you is this was made by someone and it's not you. And whoever made this, whatever he's made of, it's unbelievably powerful. And the Bible gives you even more hints. It says that he made it with words. Now, you might not be religious, but as you scan this idea of God, or maybe you've been in church for a while, but you doubt somehow God's ability to change the certain circumstance that you are in. If God can build all of this, how easy do you think it would be for him to build your life? You see, God's creation out of nothing reveals his power in my life. And power does something to you as it does to everyone my father periodically will invite me to his ranch and we'll do chores together and I'll take horses in and I'll bring horses back in and we'll clean up the muck that horses tend to leave behind. But the thing that always inspires me when I lead the horse out is how utterly powerful this is. I mean, horses are giant vegetarian cats. They should not be that powerful. But around a year ago, I'm totally right by that, by the way. Don't fight me on it. A year ago, there was a thunderstorm and one of the horses freaked out over uh, during the night and it donkey kicked a hole in the wall. The wall was made of two by 12s and it snapped it in half with one kick. I could give anyone in this room a sledgehammer and none of you could break a two by 12 in one hit. And if you think you can, you are delusional and you need more help. Meet me after the service. <laughs> That's just one animal. That's just one of the beings and... It eats straw and is infinitely more powerful than I will ever be. And what that causes me to do is slow down and I walk next to that animal in humility and reverence because it could destroy me if it wanted to. That's just one animal in one small corner of this world. And you could do this with any number of creatures or you could do it at the ocean, you could do it in the mountains, you could do it by staring at the sky. Power does something to you. And he doesn't want you to miss this, which is why in your Bible, you can read the psalm and see Lord, 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 11 times you will see that word. That is a translation of the Hebrew name Jehovah. And so what he tells you 11 times is Jehovah means the self-existent one. The one that has always existed before the earth that you stand on, that's who this psalmist hopes in and worships. And he says, if he's your help, you found a great helper. Now, if all we had was power, power would bring about respect and reverence. It would, but it would, would it bring intimacy and closeness? I would argue it wouldn't. In, in fact, it might cause us to be afraid of this God. 
And the psalmist says there's actually more to him. He's not just magnificent. He's also incredibly kind. He says, this God is a God of restoration. As you jump into this psalm, when you hit verse seven, there's a list of nine different things that he ascribes to this God that he says we should hope in. He says, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He opens blind eyes, lifts up those bowed low, loves righteous people, and he watches resident aliens, protects widows and orphans, and ruins the plans of the wicked. Every single one of these has to do with how God will look at any given situation, however broken, and say, let me fix this. Let me change this for the better. And we're going to work with this. Now, you'll notice, though, if you start scanning this list and just ask one question, where do I see God doing this? You will discover that the list is actually incomplete and seemingly a lie. And I'll explain that in a second. The psalm was written approximately 500 years before the time of Jesus. So this is Old Testament. The psalmist was writing it so that it would be sung by Jews in the synagogue so that they could remember their God and what he did and worship him all the better. But have you ever sung a song because it had a catchy tune and you didn't really know the lyrics and then someone called you on it and they were like, you probably shouldn't be singing that song. Don't raise your hand because, you know, we don't want to make fun of you. But I have sung songs before not realizing what the lyrics were and I believe that the Jews were doing that. Because as they sung this song, what they should have done if they looked at it closely is said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something in here that shouldn't be. You see, I asked the question of every line, where did God do this? so that we can see if this psalm is true. Where did God execute justice for the oppressed? Well, a number of times, but probably most notably when he brought the Hebrews out of Egypt and punished Pharaoh and his army, he executed justice. Where did he give food to the hungry? He gave manna in the desert for 40 years, among other places, when he kept Elijah alive in the desert and fed him by ravens. Did he set prisoners free? Absolutely. Joseph, Jeremiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he set a number of prisoners free. Did he lift up those bowed low and love righteous people? Absolutely. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of their children. Did he watch over resident aliens? Again, yes. But you'll notice I skipped one. He says he opens blind eyes. This line transforms the psalm because it makes it something entirely different. You see, if you scan the Old Testament, you will not find one example of God opening blind eyes. Not one which surprised me, but I looked at this and I thought, why would the psalmist write it if it hadn't happened? Why would he ascribe something to God if God hadn't done it? Doesn't that make him a liar? But we know that this isn't true. We know that scripture is breathed by God. It doesn't have any errors in it. It's not a lie. So what do I do with this text? What this began to show me is that Psalm 146 can easily be taken as a history lesson. It can easily be looked at and said, here's a list of everything God did. But here's the problem. When you and I are broken, when we're scared, when our marriage is on the rocks, when our children are running away from the Lord, when we're struggling with addiction, nobody's going to scripture saying, can you give me a history lesson? No one's going to Psalm 146 for hope if this is simply a list of what God did. But if it's more than that, if it's a list of who he is, that would mean that his character is perfect yesterday and today and forever. As the psalmist says, he's perfect and consistent for all time. So if it's something that God did in the past, I don't go to that in hope. But if it's who God is, it means that right now, whatever my broken situation is, he wants to restore it. And that's a God that I can hope in. 
And so how in the world can we make this Psalm true if it's something God didn't do in the Old Testament? Well, you see, someone does open blind eyes and you could probably guess who it is. It's Jesus and he does it many, many times. And so as I started scanning this more, I came to believe, and I, I genuinely believe this is true, that Psalm 146 is not just a song, it's a prophecy. And it's a prophetic list of the ministry of Jesus because he confirms all of these, which would then make God not a liar. It would make, him, it would make this a prophetic announcement of what God was going to do. You see, in John 9, Jesus walks down an alley and he sees a blind man, blind from birth. And he goes to him, he squats in the dirt and he spits in the dirt and he makes mud and he puts it on the man's eyes and he says, go to that pool over there, wash your face and you will see. And the man says, I believe you, which would not have been my answer if I was blind my whole life and a dude spit in my face. <laughs> my thought would not be, I think you're telling me the truth, so I'm gonna go to that pool and wash up. But he does. And this is the humor of God because he goes to the pool and he washes and he can see and the Pharisees lose their mind and they say, who did this to you? And he goes, I have no idea. I've never seen him. <laughs> because Jesus heals him and then he runs away, which is awesome. And so the man is left pondering with the religious leaders of the day, how in the world did this thing happen? Because this shouldn't be doable. Not only should it not be doable, it's never been done. If you read John 9, here's what the man says after he's been healed to the Pharisees. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. It's never happened. So your Bible confirms God didn't do it in the Old Testament. He says, if this man, Jesus, were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. What has he just done for you? He said, the man that just healed me, that's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. That man is God. That man has done something no other human was ever capable of. And so what you see Psalm 146 becoming right in front of you is not a song. It's a prophecy. Let me read to you another one, and this will help it make more sense. This comes from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah was receiving revelation from the Lord about who the Messiah would be and how he would operate. And this is what he says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. This is what God, Jehovah says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, spreads out the earth and all that springs from it. Does this sound familiar? Because it should. This is paralleling Psalm 146. He says, I, Jehovah, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, keep you, and make you a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles to, listen, to open blind eyes and free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, Jehovah, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. He goes, there's one of me. See, the former things have taken place and now new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God has never moved without first announcing it so that we would know. Here's what Isaiah 46 says. God displays that he is God by prophecy. And he says, when you see this prophecy, and this one was written 700 years before Jesus. The psalm that we read together, 500 years before Jesus. 
And then Jesus fits the description to a T. And he says, I'm not just powerful, I am God. And I am in the business of restoration. Look at the men and the women that Jesus hangs out with. Jesus does ministry with prostitutes. And Jesus takes murderers and those that manipulated money and stole people's homes from them. And Jesus says, you come follow me. I wanna build a ministry with you. You see, again, if all Psalm 146 was is a list of what God did, would that be cool? Sure. Could we worship to that? I think so. But I don't go to a history lesson when my marriage is broken. I don't go to a history lesson when I've been struggling with addiction for 20 years. I don't go to a history lesson when I'm processing all my sins and brokenness and relational destruction in high school and college and early career and think to myself, the only thing I want right now is a history book. No, what I want there, what we all desperately want is to know, God, can you use me right now? Can you use my marriage right now? Because my wife hasn't spoken to me in weeks we're still married. We don't want to get divorced, but there hasn't been a romantic word spoken in our house for years. Can you use that? Can you use our family with my children that all hate God and they've run away from the church and I'm embarrassed when anyone says, how are your kids doing? And I just want to lie. Can you use that family? Can you use me when I admit to my friends and my family that I've been addicted to porn for 20 years? Can you use me? The answer is a resounding yes, but we're scared to believe it. But look at the family that God uses. Look at the title that he uses at the beginning of this psalm. Who does God choose in his perfection to identify with? He says, I'm the God of Jacob. Now, have you read Jacob's story? Look at Genesis chapter 34 and on. Jacob is a mess. He's a horrible dad. He's a horrible husband, horrible Verbally and emotionally mistreats his wives. He has four of them because he's delusional. His children, he's dismissive and passive. His daughter is raped and he does nothing because he's a coward. And God looks at Jacob and he says, I can work with that. Now, what does that teach you? That there is no broken family system in this room or otherwise that God looks at and goes, that's too much. That's too much. That's too gross. There's no human being that has out the plan and the purpose of God. You can't do it because God is a God of restoration. It's not what he's done. It's who he is. And when you look at what Jesus does, he goes to the Pharisees after they've taken this young man that was born blind and he can now see and they kick him out of the church because they're scared of real restoration. They like rules and they like control. And so when this man can suddenly see after years of blindness, they kick him out of the church. Imagine seeing a marriage come back together after an affair and we get so angry at the idea that two people would sin and then love each other again that we're like, get out of our church. Like that, that's just too much Holy Spirit for us. But they kick this man out and so Jesus goes and he stands in front of them and he goes, gentlemen, do you wanna know what floors me? That man you have assumed was blind because of sin, which wasn't true. He tells his disciples he was blind because I needed him to be so that I would heal him. I needed to show the work of God. But he goes, here's, what, here's what's crazy. You are more blind than the blind man I just healed and you claim to be able to see. You're standing right in front of me and you have no idea who I am. 
What Jesus was trying to show them and what he's trying to reveal to you is that he continues the ministry that his father had started thousands of years before. And he says, I don't just want to heal blind people. I want to open eyes, which should give you hope for the people in your family that don't love Jesus. It is a supernatural moment where God says, now you can see. I want to pull you into relationship. I want to pull you into the church. I want to show you where you have been lying to yourself for decades. Jesus says, that's why I've come. And when you read one chapter before in John 8, he says, if you sin, you are a slave. That's really what we're asking. Because none of us obviously in this moment are sitting in a prison cell. And yet some of you, unbeknownst to anyone, have been struggling with porn or lust or greed or manipulation or anger for decades And you sit and you smile and nobody knows. And what Jesus says is, would you please stop lying to yourself? You're a slave. You are a slave and you will not be free until you submit to me and we do life together. I will show you what real healing is. He says, if you submit to the son, you are free. You're free for all time. But we're scared to believe this because in our cynicism, we look at the list and we say, well, Jesus frees the oppressed, but he hasn't freed those that I know that are oppressed. Jesus heals, but I haven't seen him heal. See, we get so scared that Jesus hasn't done something yet that we claim that he's unable to do these things. But does Jesus' inactivity prove his inability? No, it just simply means you need to wait. If inactivity proved inability, then the entire Psalm would be a lie and we would need to reject it because God doesn't heal any blind person in the Old Testament. But he was waiting And he said, when you see Jesus do it, you are going to see me. And he's not just a prophet. He's not just a man. He is God and you will respect him and you will see his power to restore. But some of you, you hear this and you're like, I I don't know that I'm in because that scares me. What, What if I reveal to my wife all of my brokenness? What if I reveal to the church? I mean, Tyler, I serve in ministry at the church. What if I reveal to you or Pastor Mark what I really do in the dark when no one's seeing Will you hate me? Will God hate me? Is there any real place of safety and restoration? Because with human relationships, I've been let down and that's why we're scared. We ascribe to God what our family has done to us or what a friend does or what a boss has done. And we think, well, when I did reveal this to someone, I wasn't safe. And so if I reveal it again, I'm not gonna be safe with God. Is that true? You don't want to believe it, but you don't reveal your sin. So in part, you do believe it. But let me show you why that's a phenomenal question and why Jesus wants to answer it. If you jump into Luke chapter four, and you don't need to turn there, but I'll just tell you the story. Jesus walks into a synagogue. And imagine this is like a church service and he walks in and everyone's seated. And so he goes to the attendant at the synagogue and he says, would you give me the scroll of Isaiah? And the man says, absolutely, here you go, rabbi. And so he goes back to the podium. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. And he says this. This connects the prophecy to what you see here. He reads Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closes the scroll and he sets it down and he says, all of you in attendance, you have seen in this moment prophecy fulfilled. He goes, it's me. 
Isaiah 42 was speaking about me. Isaiah 61, speaking about me. Psalm 146, it's speaking about me. What does this reveal to you? Isaiah in chapter 46 says, you will know Yahweh by fulfilled prophecy. You will know the God that says 700 years before it happens, here's what's gonna happen. And then it does, and you think to yourself, he has fulfilled promises for thousands of years. So why would he look at your life as he's been consistent for thousands of years and then look at you and go, no thanks. I'd rather not. That's too much. The lie that you wanna believe is that you're too broken or that God's too busy or that he's uninterested in you. But God says, restoration is not what I've done, it's who I am. Fulfilled prophecy reveals to you that you can trust me because I've never lied to you. I've never lied to anyone. And I will work with any person, any sin, any family, any broken system, and we will fix it. Let me give you an example. There's a a woman named Jackie Hill Perry, an incredible speaker, wonderful teacher, a writer, a poet. When she was younger, she was abused by a family member sexually. And she determined at that moment, if this is who men are, if this is what men do, I don't want any part in it. They're mean and they hurt me. And so she dismissed all men. And she said, I will live the rest of my life in romantic relationships with women. Now that logically would make sense. If men hurt you, women don't. Let's go with women. And so she did. The problem was, is that she desperately loved church and she loved hymns and she loved her grandma who went to church every single Sunday and she would go with her grandma. All the while hiding this lesbian relationship that she was in for years. And she felt safe with her girlfriend, but she didn't feel safe with God. She goes, I read scripture and I just knew in my soul that this relationship with my girlfriend would hurt me and that it wasn't honoring to the Lord, but it was the only one that I felt safe in. So she said, the only way that this is gonna work, God, is if you prove to me that you're safe. That's the only way that I'm gonna let her go is if you are safe. And so God spent years processing with her in prayer and in journaling and in poetry, revealing to her, I am holy. That's just the word that kept coming to her mind. She wrote a book later called Holier Than Thou, which is her deep dive into what holiness is. I highly recommend it to you. Wonderful book. But she, she says, holiness is the moral and ethical perfection of God. He is perfect. He's never sinned. So let's follow the logic. And she did. She goes, if God is perfect, that means he's never sinned. If he's never sinned, that means he's never lied. And if he's never lied, that means he's never lied to me. And if he's never lied to me, that makes him the safest being in the universe to process my sin with. Because he's never gonna make fun of me. He's never gonna say that he's gonna help me and then not. He's never gonna betray me. He's never going to let me down because he hasn't and I know that he never will. So she goes home and she tells her girlfriend of multiple years, we're done. We're done because this is an honoring to the Lord and I would rather be safe and celibate than in a dangerous relationship and comfortable but in sin against God. And so they broke up and she committed for the rest of her life. She says, I will be celibate. I will write poetry. I will write devotions for for people to process intimacy with God. That will be my life. And she goes to a poetry reading and she starts just speaking her poetry and there was a young man in the audience and he came up on the stage next and he spoke poetry And he loved the Lord as much as she did. And she eventually married that man and has four children with him. And she scours the world 
writing multiple books and devotions and poetry and speaking to multiple churches saying, you don't need to live in broken, sinful destruction. You can come out of this. There's a God that loves you and made you and you're safe with him. I know because it's me. I am safe. He kept me safe and he restored who I am. Here's what's crazy. Some of you are hiding a sin because you're afraid to let it out. But what's crazy about it is if you finally let it out, that could be the ministry that God wants to start with you. You think to yourself, my marriage is disgusting. It's broken. But what if God wants to show you what forgiveness is? What if he wants to reignite romance and say, you know what your ministry is? It's marriage. You don't think it is because your current one is broken and you won't submit to me. But the moment that you do, we'll fix this. And then you will spend the rest of your life doing marriage conferences. What if you're in here and you've been struggling with porn for decades and you don't want to tell anyone, specifically your spouse and your family, because you think the shame will be too much. They will reject me. But what if God wants to show you through your wife and through your kids restoration and forgiveness? What if he wants to start a new ministry with you and say you will spend the rest of your life restoring men? See, we're so afraid that God isn't powerful, that he's not kind, and that he's not trustworthy, that we spend our entire lives hiding. But the psalmist says, submit to me, bow the knee, reveal all of who you are, and I promise you, I will restore you, and we're gonna move forward in relationship and intimacy. Why should you hope in this God? Because he, in creation, has revealed himself utterly powerful. In his restoration of human beings, he has proved himself kind. And is in his fulfillment of multiple prophecies, he has proved himself trustworthy. The only response to a God that does all three of those things is worship and hope. And so that is our job, is to process who God is and how he has treated us and move forward in hope and worship and spread that to people. I hope in this God. I hope that you do too.